Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 157, Girl in Black and White. Hi, I'm Jake. And I'm Nikki. This week, we're sitting down with Dr. Jessie Morgan Owens to discuss her book, Girl in Black and White, the story of Mary Mildred Williams and the abolition movement. Mary was born into slavery in Virginia, the child of an enslaved mother and father. Through the remarkable efforts of her father, the entire family is emancipated when she is seven years old. Shortly thereafter, Mary catches the eye of Senator Charles Sumner. Her complexion is light enough for her to pass as white, making her a powerful political pawn for the abolitionist cause. The book details her life and deep ties to the Boston area. Because we have an author interview, we're skipping the Boston Book Club. But before we talk about Mary Mildred Williams, it's time to take a look at this week's upcoming historical event. For our upcoming event this week, we're featuring a lecture in the Old North Speaker Series, Vaccination Controversies Then and Now, Boston in 1721 and 1901. The lecture will be delivered by David Jones, a professor of the Culture of Medicine at Harvard, and then followed by a community discussion facilitated by Tegan Kehoe, whom we had the pleasure to meet at History Camp. Here's how Old North describes the event. Immunization is one of the oldest and most effective medical technologies now in use. However, immunization has sparked fierce controversy throughout its history and remains controversial today. This talk will explore the public protests in Boston triggered by the inoculation against smallpox in 1721, and by compulsory vaccination against smallpox in 1901. In each case, opponents of the practice justified their resistance with a mix of arguments that span medical theory, religious faith, public safety, and individual rights. The controversy that began in Boston in 1901 reached the Supreme Court in 1905. The resultant ruling, Jacobson v. Massachusetts, still governs public health power today. These historical vignettes provide valuable perspective on modern vaccination controversies and suggest possible ways to move forward. Afterwards, join us for a reception and community conversation with the speaker and Tegan Kehoe, Education and Exhibition Specialist for the Museum of Medical History and Innovation at MGH, for an intimate, open-minded discussion of the current vaccination-anti-vaccination debate in our society. The event will be held at Old North Church on Wednesday, November 13th at 6.30 p.m. We'll include the registration link you need in this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 157. And now it's time for this week's main topic. Dr. Jesse Morgan Owens is the Dean of Studies at Bard Early College in New Orleans and author of Girl in Black and White, the story of Mary Mildred Williams. Jesse, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So can you kick things off with just an introduction to yourself and, you know, tell us about the journey that led you to expertise in 19th century American anti-slavery literature and early photography? Oh, what a great question. Um, I am a photographer by trade. Um, when I was in uh, college, I discovered photography um, like most people do by stumbling into the darkroom. Um, my stepdad had a darkroom at our house, and so he kind of showed me the ropes. And this was in the 90s when we still used film. And uh, so I got really hooked on it. And then I went to college for English and did the traditional degree. And my mom was concerned that I would never be able to get a job uh, in English. So she's like, why don't you become a photojournalist? And I always thought that was really funny, because, you know, it's not exactly not a struggle for photographers. you know. <laughs> so poet versus photographer, I'm not sure which is going to work better. But um, I took on a double major with that. And in a kind of strange, um, at Loyola University, New Orleans, where I went to college, they had a, a rule that if you are an honor student, and you had a double major, you had to write a master's thesis sort of level research project on both your majors. And so 19th century America and photography led me to daguerreotypes. Um, so I've been in love with daguerreotypes uh, since you know, forever. And actually, my husband of 20 years on our wedding night, he gave me a daguerreotype as my wedding present from him. So that gives you a sense of the level of interest that I have in 19th century photography. And I find them very, very compelling. Um, I went to graduate school in New York at NYU. And when I got there, the folks that were working on 
um, literature and literary study at that time were not necessarily incorporating some of the really fascinating voices of um, people of color and women in the 19th century. And this is not a slam on NYU. I think they were doing some really great cultural work, but it was sort of like you're going to study Melville um, if you're going to do 19th century America. And I love Melville, um, but I do think that there's some pretty compelling stories that are happening at that time. And I started doing some research into the confluence of abolitionist and reform writing in general. So women's rights, temperance writing, and the beginning of photography as a type of persuasive literary figure. And so thinking about photography as something that informs literature and changes it in very significant ways, much in the same way that photography changed painting in the 19th century. And I really got deeper and deeper into this work and started to see some of the key members of the movement are writing and thinking about photography, not just the major literary lights. Um, so, for example, Emerson's writing about photography. Thoreau is writing about photography. Whitman is writing about photography. But also um, Harry Beecher Stowe is writing about photography. There's a daguerreotype in the middle of Uncle Tom's cabin. And um, Frederick Douglass was a theorist of photography. He wrote several lectures about photography that he delivered in the early 1860s that posits photography as a world-changing event, sort of at the level of uh, the Gutenberg Bible, and thinks about the ubiquity of photography in this really powerful way. We went to an exhibit at Boston's Museum of African American History about a year ago that was all focused on Frederick Douglass's use of photography and of his own photographic image as a way to shift people's perceptions of African American men at that time. So he, he really recognized that power. He was amazing. And I had this, um, I had an opportunity to work with Zoe Trod, who was the curator for that exhibit. Um, she put out a book with John Stoffer from Harvard about at Douglas's photography. She was on a mission to prove Yeah, we got the book. Like, that's how good the exhibit <laughs> was. It was so gorgeous. I know. <laughs> like, like, I'm bringing this home. Like, I got more to learn here. And like, do you, does anybody really need in their library 165 pictures of Frederick Douglass? I think the answer is yes. Yes. Apparently we do, yes. <laughs> he, he really understood the medium in a, in a unique way. And um, what Zoe wanted to prove uh, was that he was the most photographed person in the 19th century. And uh, so she was on a mission to find enough photographs of him extant to beat out General Custer, who is number two. <laughs> oh, thank God. <laughs> she, she succeeded so far as we know. I mean, you know, it's hard when you work in this stuff because, uh, you know, one of the, one of my favorite photographs of Frederick Douglass was found in a shoebox at a gun show for sale, like as a kind of side item and at one of these um, sh uh, gun shows. So you never know where you're going to find a new picture of Frederick Douglass. He's, he's everywhere. So how did the image of Mary Mildred Williams first come across your radar? So it first came across my radar as a sentence in a, a letter that Charles Sumner wrote uh, that was published in the Boston Telegraph in 1854. Um, it was a, a quick mention of Mary in the hopes of uh, starting a kind of campaign around her image. So he essentially says, I'm closing a digger type of a little girl. If you look at it, hard hearted hunkers will be softened. Um, he really believed that this image had the power to change votes in the Massachusetts legislature, um, which at that time was thinking about some pretty key pieces of legislation, including the removal of Judge Loring who was uh, connected to the Anthony Burns rendition and also um, a an anti-fugitive slave law bill. So, you know, he's trying to convince people. And so he sends this photograph ahead of time uh, to the Boston legislature with the hope of getting people convinced to vote um, for these bills. What's amazing is that he thinks that this is the case, but it's it's just a photograph of a little girl. It's a very bourgeois photo. And I didn't actually see the photography of Mary until two years after I'd started the project. Um, I started the project in 2006 with only that letter. So <clears throat> the letter has a sentence. Her name is Mary. And it also says she's another Ida May. And Ida May was a story written by an author um, from Maine, um, Mary Pike, who's not very well known. Um, and 
in the book, it's sort of like 12 Years a Slave, but from the perspective of a seven-year-old girl who gets kidnapped and beaten and sent into slavery. And so her book um, was kind of one of the clues that I followed. I, I did a lot of research on her. And over time, the Boston Press called Mary, following Sumner's lead, they called Mary Mildred Williams, um, Little Ida May. And so that helped us to find her. For folks who are listening at home, can you just describe what you see when you when you look at this photograph of Mary Mildred Williams? Oh, sure. I'm looking at it right now. Um, she has a beautiful plaid wrapper on. Um, I've had some fabric historians tell me that it was most likely red and brown and that it could have been owned by the actual daguerreotype studio. The daguerreotype was made by Julian Vanerson, who photographed senators and um, governors. He was a very uh, high-end photographer in Washington, D.C. And so he may have had these costumes in his studio. Um, she is seven years old. She has a very solemn look on her face. She's quite small. And I think the most salient thing about this photograph is that she presents as white. If you look at this photograph, there's no question, um, I think, for most readers that she would have been considered white in the 21st century. And I think um, part of the reason why Vanerson and Sumner have her photographed in this way is that it's possible that Vanerson thought that she was white. And so he photographed her as he would any senator's niece or cousin. You know, he didn't know who she was, potentially. Um, and she's uh, very serious in the photo. She stares directly at the camera and there's no movement. There's no blurring or ghosting from movement. It's, it's almost as if she knows how important this image is. Um, and uh, it's a very compelling image. And it's stuck with me for 13 years. I've been looking for her and I find her image everywhere. And it's kind of creepy if you're in the archive and you open up a book and then there it is, you know, because um, she's just so serious in it. And it it's not the kind of picture you would normally associate with a seven-year-old. So there are several really interesting elements that come together in the book. There's the narrative of Mary Mildred's life and, you know, what happens to her. Then there's this intersection of the social construct of race with political propaganda. And then for those of us in Boston, there's that connection to Boston. Can we just start off with who was Mary Mildred? You know, can you introduce her to listeners? Mary Mildred Williams was born uh, into slavery in 1847 in Virginia. Um, and her grandmother, Prudence um, Bell, and, and her mother, uh, Elizabeth, were all enslaved by the same family, the Cornwell family, uh, until the 1840s, at which point, through a series of poor will writing, she was passed around from one executor to another until their family ended up in the hands of J.C. Whedon, who was a notorious slave trader. And at that point, her father, whose name is Henry Williams, in the book uh, Enslavement, his name was Seth Botts. He escapes to Boston and takes up residence um, in the Beacon Hill neighborhood and starts fundraising. He works as a waiter. And so he gets, you know, to speak to some really important and powerful people. He gets tied in with the Vigilance Committee and starts to fundraise. And he manages to fundraise Mary's entire family free. So not just Mary and her sister and brother, but also uh, her mother, her mother's sisters, her mother's brothers, and Prudence, her grandmother, are all uh, freed through the fundraising of Henry Williams uh, in Boston. But Henry, because he's an enslaved man who's fugitive in Boston, he can't do all the paperwork. So he has to reach out through the Vigilance Committee, which is how a lot of this material gets recorded, is through letters between um, future Governor John Andrew and Charles Sumner, who's in D.C. and can best affect the legal stuff having to do with getting them manumitted or um, freed from enslavement. So you've got letters going back from John Andrew to Charles Sumner, who is trying to figure out who do I write you know, the check to? How do I get this done? And so for a very brief moment, Mary Mil Mildred Williams uh, is officially owned, essentially, by this Massachusetts senator. Um, he has her freed and um, the entire family sent up to Boston. But before he does that, he has her photographed and he makes sure that she has a couple of tour stops, um, specifically the, the New York Times 
and uh, the Massachusetts legislature with Solomon Northrup. Um, Her story was thought to be very similar to his because for some reason, the idea is that she doesn't belong enslavement um, in enslavement. And I think that is something I've been really working with in the book. It, it created a moment where you've got this campaign built around a little girl that's intended to reach white sympathy. And as a white woman reading this story, I can really see that happening. I can see them saying, oh, this little girl looks like she could be your daughter. Don't you care about her? Um, and so that starts to happen. She's in the public eye only about three months. And then she settles into life uh, back and forth across the color line in Boston with her younger sister, Adelaide Rebecca, and her brother, Oscar, who unfortunately dies shortly after they reach Boston. Um, And I followed her story all the way until, in the book, I follow her story all the way until 1923 when she passed away in New York City. When I was first writing and editing the book, though, I didn't know what happened to her at the end of her life. Um, And so for me, chapters uh, 21 and 22 are particularly precious because they're the space that happens, you know, when you are doing this kind of research and the person that you are researching is choosing not to be found. I mean, she is passing, which was illegal in her time. And she also has a name like Mary Williams. Uh, It can be quite difficult to find her. And so from... uh, all the way up until when I first submitted the manuscript, I didn't know what happened to her at the end of her life. And then about six weeks after I turned it in, um, I got a letter from the New York, uh, you know, births and deaths office with her death certificate, which told me that she had passed away in um, in New York city. And one of the things that's really, I think relevant to Boston is that it clearly was such an important place to her that she chose at great expense to have her body removed from New York to Boston to be buried with her mother and brother in um, uh, Forest Hill Cemetery. So I think there's this persistent question that follows her of, is she black or is she white? And when you familiarize yourself with her story, it really highlights how that is truly a social construct. Like there's not an answer to that question, other than what she herself would have said, and we don't know that. But can you give us just some background on the legal construct of race at the time? And so, legally, who would have been Black and who would have been white? Without doubt, Mary Mildred Williams would have been considered Black for her entire life because of the law of hypodescent, which is um, a white supremacist construct that was enacted into various laws, differed state by state. But the basic premise of it is if you have any black blood, um, you are essentially black. That the the dominant um, culture, in this case, white culture, uh, is not the dominant uh, in terms of whether you would be considered legally one or the other, which is a strange and very American problem. And it creates a stratification of race that is unique to our country, that you could have a legal status that does not match your identity or physical identity is in a, a uniquely American problem. And until the law started to um, soften and perhaps also, I think we may now be at a place where passing is less frequent, but it is certainly a thing that was the law of the land until the 1960s. And so for Mary, she's navigating this very difficult gauntlet of laws that change depending on where she is. And so everywhere that I'm looking at Mary's story, I have to think through, okay, well, now she's in Virginia. What are the laws in Virginia? Um, And if she's freed in Virginia, for example, she can't return uh, to her home ever again. Uh, the rule was if you, you know, if you are a manumitted slave, you can't stay in Virginia because they had um, been concerned after some slave rebellions and created this crazy set of laws that made it so that you really couldn't be anywhere. And so she's essentially without a country for some time. And because of um, Dred Scott, there's also she has a, a liminal le- legal status as well. So there's just so much there. By the time she gets to her 50s, when she's settled in Boston and she's been living in Boston for some time as a white woman, she and her mother purchased a house in Hyde Park. And 
by all accounts, most likely were living there as white women. She has an aunt, Evelina, who lives on Joy Street, who's married to a black preacher who then, you know, she's obviously a, a, an elder in her church and is assumed to be black. So it really just depends on what the context is where Mary never married. Um, and so we don't know uh, whether or not if she had married, uh, you know, as her mother had married a man who was considered black, she herself was also considered black while married to Henry Williams. Um, so I think it also just depends on context clues. And obviously it's not Mary who's making these decisions too. I think that's something that I talk a lot about in the book. She, we don't know what her interest was or whether she, how she would have liked to present herself because of the legal rules that are in place and because it's the census keepers who are making these decisions. Um, the census record takers would just come into your home and say, oh, you, 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 and you, you're this. And <laughs> they write it down. <laughs> There's not like a, a moment where they're like, so how do you identify? You know, I think that's a very 21st century idea. Um, the goal was to figure out where everybody fit in a very rigid categorization that was hierarchical and had whiteness on top. Um, and she presents a threat to that hierarchy. I think in the book you mentioned the 1860, I want to say, census taker. In in the records, there's some some sense of his confusion as he sort of writes down unknown and then strikes that through and writes down mulatto and strikes that through and finally comes, I think, to the conclusion of colored, quote unquote, at the time. I think it's it's really fascinating to think about how many men in Mary's life made these determinations for her. And nowhere in anywhere in any of the writing or research that I did, do I have anything that Mary said? Not a single word from her, not a single piece of writing. And all I have are what the people who interacted with her and whose words were kept, which are predominantly men, thought of her and thought of what she thought and thought of what she was feeling. Um, and so it's a really kind of, it's an interesting kind of silencing. She's in a, a bell jar of sorts in that we can't necessarily see how she would have navigated those um, strictures differently should she have been born in a different century or in a different country. You mentioned the lawsuit by the Cornwall family trying to recover their property, Mary's family, Prudence and Elizabeth. And before that, that lawsuit's resolved, Mary's father, who at the time is known as Seth Botts, escapes from slavery. and He eventually lands in Boston. When he gets there, he chooses to change his name to Henry Williams. So I guess my first question along those lines is why would he have chosen to change his name and, and how did he settle on, on that name? What I do know is that Henry Williams was the name of a friend of his who was free and a waiter living in DC and could have been his last stop before he went to freedom in Boston. And I think, you know, he may have just copied Henry Williams's papers, which was a very common thing to do at the time. Both, uh, Seth Botts or Henry Williams and Elizabeth, his wife, could write and read. And so, which was rare at the time. Now, when he copies out these documents and he starts living under that name, that's his name then from then on. But what's interesting is, is that not only does he choose to change his name, but the entire family retroactively changes their name to Williams as well. And I think that often is a, a signifier that that's the chosen name. That once they reach freedom in Boston, they all have the same last name, that this is the this is their chosen life. It's also a great way to hide out. Williams is an extraordinarily common name. And it is one of those things that gives historians headaches. As I say in the book, when he changed his name, he became much, much harder to find. Seth Botts is only two people that I could find. Um, whereas Henry Williams, there are so, so, so many. And the book itself... Also, my book has something like five people named Williams in it that are not related to our family at the center of the book. Um, so it's just constant, including a notorious slave trader. So it's a constant battle to try and track which Henry this is. Um, and I think it made it so that he connects, uh, he connects to a sort of anonymity that he needed at that time in his life. Along those lines, he needed that anonymity because even though he was in Boston, he wasn't necessarily 100% safe. And you mentioned early, earlier in our conversation, the 
rescue of Shadrach Minkins, the the accused fugitive. Henry Williams, now living as Henry Williams, he actually took a job that had become available because of Minkins' absence. Uh, can you tell us about uh, what that job was and then how Henry followed in Shadrach Minkins' footsteps in uh, September of 1851? Sure. Um, it was such an amazing story, and I think it's a very Boston story, so I'm very happy to tell it here. Um, there is... Uh, there was a person named Shadrach Meekins who was working in Boston as a fugitive uh, from enslavement. And he was picked up in a kind of horrific event where the policemen came to him at work at breakfast. They were posed as diners and they're like, ha, you know, you are the slave of so-and-so and they <laughs> carry him off. But in this case, the vigilance committee, the abolitionists in Boston were able to mount a very rapid response before the end of the day they had a group of people lined up outside of the courtroom and at one point just burst down the doors. When the lawyers were trying to leave for the day for lunch, they burst down the doors and carried Shadrach Minkin out on their shoulders. And he was secreted through Concord to uh, Montreal where he took up residence. Well, as soon as that happened, uh, Henry found out that this job was available, probably through his network uh, of, of friends and supporters there. And he quickly took the role, but it put him in proximity to some of the leading lights of the abolitionist movement who all like to lunch there. So before you know it, people are coming for lunches like John Andrew, who is the head of the Fugitive um, Fund. But they, you know, so these these important Bostonians are interacting with in, you, with folks that are known to be fugitives at this restaurant because the owner, um, George, has decided that that's the way that he wants to run his business, which I think is a really compelling model for us today as activists. Um, he knows that these people who are living in Boston cannot take up work legally um, and cannot be open about their identities, and yet he still chooses to hire them. I was going to say, unfortunately, that must mean that slave catchers also knew that fugitives were uh, working in this restaurant, potentially under assumed names. Yes, exactly. So this one guy, Burns, um, who's a policeman, a uh, Boston policeman, has, has decided to start um, doing his raids at the Cornhill Coffee House. And before long, about, you know, I think it's in October of 1851, he comes with writs or, you know, documentation saying that there is a man living under the name of Williams at your coffee shop. Thankfully, he was not there at that time. And Henry Williams uh, is absconded to Concord, where he hangs out with Henry David Thoreau for a day and a half, where, you know, he's basically waiting for a safe train to get to Boston. And unfortunately, the slave catchers also know the Concord is a place where people are being hidden. And so they're waiting at the train station when Thoreau and Henry Williams go to see if it's safe for him to get on the train. And there's a policeman there. So he's like, well, we decided to wait till the evening trains. And the reason that I know all of this detail is because Thoreau keeps a very great journal that I think most people are aware of. His journaling was uh, one of the most beautiful um, documents of the 19th century. And he has in his journal, Thoreau's journal for October 1851, is my, you know, guy, Henry Williams. And they spend the afternoon together walking through the woods, talking about, you know, how did you get here from Virginia? What do you use for navigation? And they have a an, an really interesting conversation, um, some of which Thoreau has recorded. I believe that that conversation may have been more impactful even to Henry Williams because he decides to get on the train to Montreal later that evening, but then he turns right back around and comes back to Boston and begins the process of getting his family out of slavery. Um, so there seems to have been something very empowering in his meeting with Thoreau. Unlike Shadrach Minkins, who lives out the rest of his life, I believe is a barber in Montreal, Williams is going to come back immediately, but he has to take steps to make sure he's going to be safe in Boston. What, what does he do to secure his safety and, and who helps him secure his, his manumission? Um, yeah. So the first thing he has to do is to raise the funds to be manumitted. Um, and, you know, his situation is very common. His father owned him. Um, he was 
an enslaved person who's uh, was, you know, the product of his father and an enslaved woman. So he has to try and figure out how to get the manumission papers most likely from his father. And it is one of those uh, historical necessities that he has to go through abolitionists and other sympathetic lawyers. Um, it isn't easy to find those in Virginia. And so that's where Senator Sumner becomes involved. Charles Sumner is a member of the Vigilance Committee. He's one of the many lawyers that were a part of that group. There's about 100 members at this time, and about 30% were lawyers, because that's a really important aspect of the work was to make sure that people's legal standing could be shifted. And the only way to do that is through white men participating in the process. And so Henry uh, Williams has raised most of the money used uh, to manumit himself. He has about $100 shy, but he goes for it anyway. And he sends the $800 down to Washington, D.C. to be um, given by Sumner to his parents' lawyer, and they then send back the documents. And they say, you know, it isn't valid until you give us the last $100. And I, I think that that's such an indicative moment in the book. It's very sort of small moment in the book, of course, uh, in which there are many, many injustices. But the fact that his family's like, well, uh, you still owe us 100 bucks, but for the next, you have a year to get that to us, or this whole thing gets undone. Um, just seems really cruel, you know, it'd be like if your parents charged you interest, you know, <laughs> it's like, right. sorry, you still, you still owe us this extra hundred dollars before we'll officially sign off. Um, but out of the care and affection, that's the quote uh, that he's the care and affection that we have for Seth. Now, what's really amazing is just how much Henry Williams resonates across history. Uh, he was one of thousands of people in his situation. And yet he really must have been quite the charismatic leader. Um, he must have really made an impression on people because for the most part, any documents that I have been able to find about him mention his easy smile, mention how you know charismatic he is or how affectionate he is. And so I really do have a great deal of respect and love for this character because I think, you know, he must have been quite uh, the most amazing, he must have been an amazing man to have, first of all, been able to raise thousands of dollars um, in a few years, but also, which at that time, I mean, in, in today's money is probably 50 grand. Um, and then also to be able to get all of these people to do the work for him. Charles Sumner is obviously a political chess player in the way that he approaches this work and whatever his motivations are, like he is trying to win the game. And so in putting Mary Mildred out there, he is able to tug on the heartstrings of white people who are going to see her um, in her full humanity in a way that they wouldn't see darker skin children. So how does he you know, leverage like these complex emotions and how does that like play out across the, the black and the white abolitionist communities in Boston? I want to say that the reason that I feel um, we can learn something from Sumner's political chess moves and how he was willing to win the game by playing on white sympathy is understanding how in the court of public opinion, there were people at that time who were considered less than. And so when we worked with Mary's story, when I tried to find out more and more about Mary's story, what I was really learning was a history of failures of white sympathy to be able to reach outside of race and outside of class and even outside of gender to recognize the full humanity of people who look differently than us. Um, I'm speaking as a white woman um, because it's the radio. I feel like I should say that. Um, but I also feel like when we think about what it means to care about people who are different from us, how much work has to be done to build up that empathy is something that we can learn a lot from today. I just went to a, a program yesterday that was hosted by Mitch Landrew and Cleo Wade and um, Lorraine Powell Jobs. It's a new fund here in New Orleans, based in New Orleans, called E Pluribus Unum. And it's about going around and finding out through storytelling and qualitative research what the gaps in history are that need to be filled in so that people can get past our history of racism. 
if our government is not going to take on the work of doing reparations or a large scale truth and reconciliation committee as it has as other countries have done we as white americans oftentimes have big gaps in our education around what racism is but also what slavery was at this time that was also true which i find to be really striking and kind of embarrassing for the people that i'm writing about like how could you not know what was going on and how could you not know that this was happening in your own country but then you know i do also have the self awareness that that is happening today uh and we we must understand that there are gaps in our knowledge base that are purposeful that people don't want us to know things um mary story allows the abolitionists to basically drop a empathy bomb right at the intersection of race gender and empathy and just drop right into the space where people feel the need to care. Um and I think a lot of poster children do the same work. No matter what the poster child is standing in for, a lot of times you'll see someone who is this solemn beautiful child who really reaches for our heartstrings in a specific way. That empathy bomb ends up getting used by a lot of different people in different ways. So Charles Sumner is using the image of Mary Williams to to sort of tug at the heartstrings of white families who wouldn't otherwise have that empathy with enslaved families. At the same time, our future governor, John Andrew, is out selling prints of the daguerreotype along with a broadsheet about, quote unquote, item A. So what, what was he hoping to do with the money he was raising that way? Well, John Andrew comes across very well in my book. I will I will say that right off the bat. Um, one of the things I did in my book that I really had to fight my editors for and I think I'm really proud of this move, so I'm just going to say it if you haven't read the book yet, is that there's a uh series of extracts in the book. I just left the words of the people on the page so that people could today read the writings of these men and women who are abolitionists and make the assessments for themselves about what the motivations might have been with John Andrew the motivation was very simple he was a fundraiser he was there to try and figure out how do we get enough money to free the rest of this family when mary reaches boston and um john andrew is first replicating this daguerreotype and making sure it gets in the hands of all of the right people he is doing so specifically to raise money for Mary's uncles who are still enslaved and remain in slavery until 1856. And when it comes down to the work that the daguerreotype is doing, it's partially able to convince people to give money, but also hopefully to win over votes. One of the places where the most copies of the daguerreotype are distributed is the Massachusetts legislature, which at this time was largely nativist. It was um almost entirely run by the American Party and so these are people who don't who have, you know, sworn <laughs> to protect Boston and Massachusetts from the influx of people like Mary. Um so I think it's a really interesting problem to be like, well, you think that you know um what an American looks like, but you don't. And this is some this is a daguerreotype that proves that we know more than you do about who deserves to be here. Now along with using the image of Mary there are abolitionist organizers who will use Mary herself as a sort of a propaganda piece and you describe uh a rally in Worcester Massachusetts where the speaker the MC basically asks for any girls in the crowd who are around 10 years old to come up on stage can you tell our listeners what he then has the crowd Oh, I love this scene. Thank you for bringing it up. Um when I first came across this in the newspaper, I was like, "Oh, no way." <laughs> the Worcester Spy reported it as essentially the MC asked a group of children uh who are 10 years of age to come up on stage and then had Mary mix in with that group. And these uh anti-slavery activists and um others who were at this convention then you know ask their own children to get up on stage and then the crowd shouts out which one they think was the former slave um and i just i can't imagine what 
um, kind of pain that must have caused for the families involved, but also just kind of what Mary was going through in her time as a token piece, uh, as a pawn on the abolitionist stage. She's essentially having her body examined by strangers uh, over and over and over and over again in order to determine her race and to determine what future she deserves. And I think it's a really uh, affecting moment that the people of Worcester lived through in this particular scenario to think through their own children as not being worthy. Yeah, it's kind of a sad commentary that in order to convince these white Worcesterites or these Massachusetts crowd in general of the shared humanity that they have with African-Americans in the South, that they almost had to dehumanize Mary in order to do that. And you, you mentioned later on what Thomas Wentworth Higginson, how he reacted to some of this treatment of her. Can you tell us what he thought about the, the use of Mary as a spectacle? Yeah, he was very much against it. Now, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, I think, is an interesting character in that he was an extraordinary um, abolitionist and activist um, who definitely believed in putting everything on the line. Um, that said, his reaction to Mary was very strange. Um, he, he wanted to protect her from this dehumanization, in part because he and Mary got along so well. He, according to his telling, uh, he and Mary were, you know, in love at first sight and that he could adopt her. He tried very hard to adopt her. Um, his wife was an invalid at this time. And so it didn't make sense for him to take on a child. Um, and so he had a very hard time doing so, but he kept trying to figure out ways to get Mary adopted away from her family and into a white family so that she could then have a different life. And that was a very common thing at the time, um, but it was also deeply upsetting to think about this family that had been so tight and had worked so hard to stay together. And Prudence, in particular, her grandmother, had done everything in her power to raise her family as a whole and to keep her family whole. They finally get to Boston. They're there only three months. And here are these people, these very powerful and wealthy people trying to take Mary away. And one of the things that um, Higginson does is he has her Mary go to live in, sorry, Newburyport um, to be in a kind of girl's school over the summer. And that gives Mary an opportunity, I think, to heal some of that dehumanization, but also to have a taste of what upper middle class white life is like. And it, I think that that does affect her for the rest of her life. Henry, you treat as having gone through this super heroic series of actions to raise the money, to get the, the family back together. And then finally, they're reunified. And almost immediately, Henry and Elizabeth have to wrestle repeatedly with the question of, should they allow the daughter to be adopted away, adopted by a white family? I know you say that you don't have any of Mary's words, but do you have any sense of how the family wrestled, wrestled with that question? I don't, in part, because all I have are what the white men in particular who wanted to adopt Mary thought about it. And so, you know, when you're working with just one side of the story, it's very difficult. And I think from my perspective as a historian, I want to make sure that if I'm reporting an emo any emotional content, that it is absolutely coming from the person. Um, there's so little understanding and just just so little sympathy and understanding between the two groups, between this black family who presents as white and this group of, you know, Unitarian ministers and abolitionists and so forth who want to adopt her, that they're coming from different worlds. And so if they say, for example, Elizabeth is fine with this, her mother is fine with it, we just need to get her uh, legally, whatever, it, it, I don't believe them, frankly. You know, I just don't. Because I, I do feel like the the things that we can really go on in terms of understanding these relationships, which were quite difficult and were tested by oppression and the experience of being a fugitive, but also the experience of losing many of the members of the family in Boston to disease within the first few years of their arrival. They buried quite a few members of the family. And I think that experience is really tells us some, a different story. The family chose to be buried together and Mary chose to live with her mother until the end of her life or, you know, and to visit her mother frequently. Um, we also see, for example, um, Mary choosing 
one of the few utterances I have from her is her choice to have her mother disinterred and move to a plot where she can be buried with her brother who's been die who's been dead for 30 years. And so these two family members are brought together at Forest Hill Cemetery. That to me says something about what the importance of family was for Mary and how she envisioned herself as a member of this family and not necessarily as a member of some other stranger's family. Yeah, after what's really a brief period as a very public-facing embodiment of abolitionist propaganda, she and her family then retreat into a more private life. And it seems like you have less documentary evidence of that period, but you get a sense of how important it was to the family to be together from Henry's efforts to reunify the family from then Mary's later efforts to unify them in in death. But there is this interlude in uh, the last chapter where you describe Mary living with her mother, Elizabeth, and uh, a sister in Hyde Park in the 1870s and not living with Henry. Do you have any sense of how that came to be? Yeah, that's one of the mysteries of the book. The family moved out to the country, as was very common um, in response to disease. And so they lived, uh, you know, out and then they moved back to Boston um, when the daughters were old enough to marry. Henry Williams at this point does no longer live with the family. There are a couple of reasons that this could be true. And I think one of the things that's really interesting is that in writing the book, I was very careful to not put anything in it that wasn't evidenced by the actual archive. And this is one of those things. I mean, if we think about the histories of our own marriage, how little evidence would there be for the various moments in, in, in a marriage that are both, you know, close or not close, you know. And of course, 21st century marriages are very difficult for us to imagine what a 19th century marriage looked like and what it could have been, um, especially a marriage that was between two people who um, had lived through as much as Elizabeth and Henry had lived to through together. Um, and so at a certain point, they split, as you said, in the 1870s, Henry Williams is living in Cambridge and Elizabeth Adelaide and um, Mary Mildred are all living in this house in Hyde Park. And what I think happens at that moment is a choice um, to decide to live as white people. Now, Adelaide Rebecca, who is uh, Mary's younger sister, goes against that choice. She almost immediately marries a black coachman and goes to live with her aunt Evelina, who has the sort of other side of the family's outpost um, at 69 Joy Street. And so she's she decides, no, that's not for me and moves away. But Mary and her mother stay in Hyde Park um, in, as invalids. They take on um, white boarders. They go to a white church. Uh, and Mary eventually works as a clerk of court, which would have been a job that was not available to her otherwise. They are, at some points in this story in the 1870s, very ill. And so I wonder if access to medical care was part of the question. And any time that Henry Williams was living with Elizabeth Williams, that family was Black. Any time that Henry Williams is not living with them, that family is white. Elizabeth passes as white as easily as her daughter does. For the two women, I think that the choice to live alone is also a choice to live in white society. Um, and so we don't know. I mean, the thing is, too, we don't absolutely have any understanding of the relationship between Henry and Elizabeth. And I can't even imagine how much they went through in that marriage to get to the place where they were. And so to make the choice for him to live alone in Cambridge could have had a million different reasons. But most of my, you know, my friends and my family who have been living the story with me as I find little tiny pieces of it and I stitch another part to the story when I stitched this part to the story, everybody wanted to undo the thread almost immediately. They're like, no, he's really doing this to protect the family. And they, they, they just can't live together because, you know, of the racial laws of the time. And, you know, surely she couldn't have bought the house on her own. The house cost $3,000. You know, how did she get that money? It must have been Henry. So there's lots of desire to see this family survive and did not have the more prosaic possibility that the family just dissolved. Um, so I think it's a it's an interesting moment in the book that really, I think, ties at our uh, uh, heartstrings because we really want a happily ever after for this family. So at this stage of their lives, 
Would there have been a risk or a danger of a perceived perceived white women living with a black man or of white of them passing as white women? Like what were the legal implications of those choices? Um, it would have dissolved their entire lives, more or less. Um, I think living um, the marriage obviously would have been dissolved um, if it was proved that she was white or and that he was black. Passing was criminalized in many ways, but in very specific way, it was uh, it meant that they would have lose, lost their livelihood and potentially also their home. Um, and so I think the dangers of being discovered uh, as passing were particularly strict um, in the 1920s and 1910s, which is sort of the period in which this is happening and when they are living in this way. And I think that the reason for that, it has to do with the shifting um, ground on which Mary has to walk around race during the early 19th, late 19th century and early 20th century. If you think about how much the legal landscape around her changed around Jim Crow and laws about who deserves to be where, um, it's it's a tremendous amount of pushing back from white legislatures to um, control the influx of groups from outside into American society. And so the laws are there essentially to protect whiteness and to define whiteness. Um, as we go into the 20th century, right, we're looking at a period in which the rise of white supremacy becomes a very big part of the national discourse. And so I think that it would have been dangerous for Mary to be discovered, not just because she would have lost her apartment, most likely her job, but also it might have put other relationships that she had in her life in danger. So Jesse, where does the daguerreotype of Mary Mildred actually reside today? It's at the Massachusetts Historical Society. Um, until recently, it was listed as Untitled Girl, potentially Mary Mildred Botts. I've been working with them to kind of pushing back a little bit against the titling of that um, and to go ahead and just say, this is clearly Mary Mildred and Williams is her chosen last name. So I'm, I'm going to be at the Massachusetts Historical Society next month for a talk. So I hope to kind of push back a little bit more on the naming of that, uh, the naming convention of the daguerreotype. But anyone can see it. And there's actually two daguerreotypes of Mary at the Massachusetts Historical Society. And one of them is of her and her brother, Oscar, who presents as black. And when he's in the picture, she is so different. She doesn't have that solemn look on her face. She's just, she looks free. She looks happy. And so I think it's worth going and seeing it uh, at, at, the, at the Massachusetts Historical Society. Now, what's amazing to me is the role that Boston in general plays. And part of the reason that this family could be found was the extraordinary detail of archival materials that is available in the Boston area. So at a certain point, you know, I'd been researching this story for about 15 months straight from a far remove, and it became clear to me that I needed to be in Boston in order to find more information about her and her family. And so I got 18 months of archival research funding to come to Boston. I was housed at the Newhouse Center in um, Wellesley and was able to go from archive to archive and read all the newspapers and letters from the 1850s to discover more and more about her. And a lot of really serendipitous moments occur in the archive. It's There's this thing that Jacques Derrida calls the archive fever. And it is like something that sort of burns in you to, to look for more, but also an, a recognition that there's always going to be a limit. And that limit is institutional and it's on purpose. Um, so one of the things that I really came up against is how many words were saved by men uh, living at this time, which was great because they were talking about Mary, but how little was saved um, from the perspective of, of, say, for example, Mary and her family. We have zero words from them. So it's kind of like a silence, but within a very noisy plaza of, of people speaking about abolition and about Mary and about what matters. And Boston, I think, not just as a place where history is taken so seriously and where archives are so rich and so accessible, 
not only is that part of it, but also I found that actually walking the places that Mary and her family lived and being able to see, for example, what Joy Street looks like and what Tremont Street looks like and what Chestnut Street looks like and where the Cornhill Coffee House would have been, it's all very much present. And if you think about those streets, if you're standing, for example, in Beacon Hill, and you imagine during the Burns rendition, 50,000 people storming the streets and covering the buildings in black bunting just to watch one enslaved person get sent back to Virginia. And it, it's just a beautiful part of our history to know that there were at one time, you know, like my mom loves to say, like, this is before Twitter. Like they didn't even have like a flash mob <laughs> thing. Like they just, all around the streets. How do they get out there so fast? They're like within 24 hours, they can mount the kind of uh, resistance that I talk about in the first chapter of my book. Like, you know, when Anthony Burns is, when he's walked down the, the to the pier, and then when they get to the pier, they then fill the harbor with boats to try and keep his boat from leaving to go to Virginia. I think it's just genius. We could really learn a lot from that, you know, that group of abolitionists and that group of activists of what's possible and what kind of response is responsible uh, in this day and age. And certainly when people are removed from our communities now, we don't mount that kind of response, you know. And so I think I really admire that spirit of of community and of, of being informed and being on top of the information that is available in your town. And keeping that information for future generations, even someone like me from Louisiana, you know, who can just come and spend 18 months in the Boston area archives and put together this beautiful story is really, it's really valuable. And I, I, I really appreciate it. Um, it was the coldest winter of my life. And I can't believe that you all do that every year. <laughs> Um, to, to live through that every year would absolutely kill me. But uh, I did appreciate that, that one, that one winter in Boston. And I found so many amazing accidental finds. And, you know, I would be, for example, just reading, uh, in the Liberator and I would let my eyes sort of travel around the page to see what else was going on at the time when I'm looking at the specific thing. And there is a, a story about the Everett school and about how Mary is at the Everett school. I didn't know that she had gone there, but I just happened to be reading through all the liberators to see what kind of information I could glean from them. And, you know, that kind of opportunity is really special. Well, I know that you will be back in the Boston area soon. You have some upcoming events. So can you tell our listeners when and where they could hear more from you? Well, if there's anyone listening from Worcester, I will be at the American Antiquarian Society on Tuesday, November 5th at 7 p.m. And that's the place where I did a lot of my research because they have the most newspapers. So I did I did spend quite a few months in Worcester. So I'm glad to go out there. Um, and then I will be at the Massachusetts Historical Society on November 6th. There'll be a reception with me at 530. And then I'll give a talk at 6 in which I spend... 15 minutes trying to convince them to change the name of the daguerreotype. <laughs> Wish me luck. Maybe we can mount a response and have 50,000 people on Boylston <laughs> Street. <laughs> that would be amazing. That would be amazing. Although, to be fair, they are extremely amenable. So, it we're not really fighting the true enemy here. And then finally, I'm excited to be out at Cambridge at Longfellow House on November 7th at 6.30 and my reason to go out there is because the folks um, from Longfellow House came to one of my talks last spring and um, said, you have to come out. You have Longfellow in your book. And I said, yes, I do. I have a couple of really great quotes from him that I had to cut, actually. So I'll be excited to have him uh, reappear in the book on um, November 7th. Great. And how can our listeners find out more about you and your work online? Where should they go? So my last name is Morgan-Owens, um, Morgan-Owens.com, M-O-R-G-A-N-O-W-E-N-S. And if you uh, look there, you'll see all of the events, but also I've posted a very helpful, if you are reading the book, particularly in part one, I have heard some feedback that you need a family tree to get through it. Yes. And I absolutely hear that. Um, it was not something that we decided to do at Norton, but I do have the family tree available online for folks who are getting through those first 
hundred pages. When you're dealing with enslaved families, there's two families you have to follow, right? You have the family who is enslaving them as well as the family that is at the focus of the book. So both family trees are on my website at morganowens.com. That, that's great. We can print those out and, you know, tuck them in your inside cover. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it would be helpful for sure. Maybe for the paperback next August, <laughs> I'll put that in there. A definite request. Well, Dr. Jesse Morgan Owens, thank you so much for joining us this week. It has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for having me and allowing me to go on and on about one of my favorite subjects of all time. To learn more about Dr. Jesse Morgan Owens and Mary Mildred Williams, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 157. We'll have links to purchase the book, as well as her website and upcoming events in the Boston area. We'll also link to the book Picturing Frederick Douglass, which we highly recommend. Before we sign off, we want to thank our Patreon sponsors, and especially Mark M., our newest supporter. If you enjoy the show and would like to kick in as little as $2 a month to help us cover expenses, you can learn more at patreon.com slash hubhistory. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we might play it on the show. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. It's one of the best ways to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week.